You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I want to share a quote with you that I was thinking about this week that I want us to reflect on together. Um, it may seem a little abstract, but it actually is, uh, can be quite intimate if we, uh, if we hold it. All evil is a privation of original goodness. Evil and sin are accidental conditions of human nature, not intrinsic qualities. Hold that for a second. See if it disturbs you or comforts you, or whatever. This quote's from David Bentley Hart, who's an Eastern Orthodox philosopher and a decidedly unnecessarily verbose writer, which is why I had to define a word in the quote that I didn't know before I read it. But I think he makes a good point about how we're created. And I just want to pause and and consider who we are and who we are created to be. Not just for a, for a, a, because it could be philosophically tantalizing to you, but because I think it gives us a good image of who God is and how God created us. How we see ourselves is interwoven with how we see God. They are not mirrors of one another, but they're connected. How we see God having created us reflects on the character of God too. I think it's important to consider this because we can sometimes see how we act in in our privation, right? In our hardship, in our poverty. And we can forget how we're created, right? You can think of yourself in your worst, the worst possible place you've been in. When you feel guilty for something you've done, or you feel bad about who you are, or you feel hopeless about the world, any number of things. And you can think, this is just how it is, and this is just how I am. I'm as bad as I am in my worst moment, and that's my most authentic moment, too. And anything better than that is just me figuring out how to be a little bit better. But really what's happening is how how I feel at my most miserable is truly who I am. That might be a thought that sometimes comes up in your mind or in your body. And when that happens, we can forget what I think is really important in this quotation, the intrinsic goodness that's in us. That God created us, as the writer of Genesis 1 says, and called us good. We can forget that. And maybe we can think that even our power to be evil exceeds God's power to create us as good. When we think of how God sees us, in, my, uh, in, the, in the limited knowledge and more limited wisdom that I have, I want to say to you, God doesn't see you as evil. God doesn't see you as a worm. As Isaac Watts said in his famous hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Some of you know this. Here's Isaac Watts, 1707. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Sometimes we sing that song in Circle of Hope, and we take some liberties with it, and we put child there instead of worm, because it's just a little easier to hold. 
And we really are God's children. And I think it's a better writing of Isaac Watts' song. God doesn't uh, see you like Isaac Watts sang. God doesn't see you as the 18th century revivalist Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which if you were in the Pennsylvania public school system, 10th grade would have been the year that you read this piece of literature. Um, here's, uh, here's Jonathan Edwards, who actually wearing a similar outfit to Isaac Watts for some reason. So similar hair too. So I guess that was, that was popular at the time. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider. By the way, who is doing this to spiders, right? Like, what, 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 you know, and part of me is thinking, if you're doing that to spiders, you're not that well either, you know? Um, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked, his wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Whoa, Jonathan Edwards, that's very negative. It's surprisingly negative. And, 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 and in some sense, he wants to uh, make God so good in comparison to us. I mean, the, the, the point is to elevate God but really what it does is kind of oppress us. And I bring this up because maybe you consider yourself like a worm or a spider. Or maybe you consider your enemy a worm or a spider. That's not to say we don't act abhorrently sometimes as Edwards has described. Certainly you've seen humanity at its worst doing horrible things. But I think we do God a disservice when we assume God sees us the way that we see one another or the way that we see ourselves. And I want to I keep working with this because I think it is a real obstacle to faith and intimacy with God. Because if you see God this way, it is very hard to believe that God loves you and it is very hard to love God. God sees us as created good and beloved. And more importantly, God isn't just our creator. The favorite description of the writers of the Old Testament of God is liberator, deliverer. God sees you as worthy to be freed and loved and saved because God made you. And God's salvation is about restoring us to who God created us to be not who we've accidentally become as a perversion of our intrinsic self, of our true self. The hardship that we find ourselves in, the despair that we find ourselves in, the misery of the world, the poverty of the world, isn't to doesn't totally erase who God created us to be and who God saved us to become. And so even now, as we see through a glass darkly. In our world today, even though we don't see clearly, we see impressions of what was and what will be. This is the spirit of what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 5, which we're sitting with this quarter, and we'll keep reading it, so to mull it over together as a body. 
Someone out loud read 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We no longer see ourselves, thanks Robert, in our hardships, in our, uh, in our misery, in our poverty, in our privations. We see one another as God intended, our new selves, our true self. There is something new and rather old even that Jesus is inaugurating. Restoration, redemption, reconciliation, making things right. Jesus is restoring creation, or as Paul says, making a new one. You are reconciled to God, and you have an opportunity to live in harmony with God. Paul says this happens through Jesus. We are reconciled with God through the work of Jesus. Jesus, who is one with the Father. Here's how Jesus addresses his Father right after the Last Supper. He says, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oneness with God, oneness with Jesus, not unlike the oneness that the Father and the Son share. This is a big deal. Intimacy, connection, closeness. This is the reconciling work that Jesus is doing. And I say this because sometimes we separate God, the Father and the Son too much. And sometimes you hear that the father has so much wrath within him that he has to pour it out onto his son to, so that his son absorbs it instead of us. That separation of God undoes John 17, in my view. Furthermore, that separation that even Jonathan Edwards is working with undoes John 17, 21. The sacrifice is done. It happened. We're intimate. The, the wrongs have been righted and back to what they were. We become one with Jesus by ingesting him in the Last Supper, in the, in the Lord's Supper. And I know that sounds weird because I keep saying ingest. You're eating Jesus. It sounds, it sounds a little, could be concerning. And it is weird. You know, when Jesus first announced that they would be eating his body, he lost a lot of followers because it was, it was a bizarre thing to say. And it still is, if you actually think about it. But it really is what's happening. We're joining in the body of Christ such that we are Christ for the people around us. We are really operating out of our new self. We're not worms or spiders. We're the beloved children of God. Once lost, fine, now found. Always God's children. That's the symbol of reconciliation and oneness with God. All that needed to happen, happened on Golgotha, the hill that Jesus died on, the, the mount that we just praised in Come Thou Fount, the mount that we're fixed upon. So we are fully welcomed into the family, the family to which we were formerly estranged. And the remnant of this accident is still around. The poverty is still here. The misery is still here. The hardship is still here. And how we desire inclusion is still present. So even though we swim through murky waters, tainted by our disorderedness, we have, in, and we have incomplete experiences of the new creation among us. And I think people 
desire intrinsically to be together. I think that's part of our makeup. To be in community. It is all over us and all over time. The big idea, I think, is that we're better together than alone. Even God organizes this in God's self. We call it the Trinity sometimes. Go back to John 17 and you see that the Father and Son are one. They are of the same substance and now we're invited into that very community to be close, to be related to God and to a new family. Human beings have been doing community for a long time or looking for it, looking for belonging, looking for connection, looking for understanding, looking for empathy, shared experiences. People are trying to get together and find some meaning beyond themselves. It surprised me today when I learned the news of Kobe Bryant, the 41-year-old basketball star who died in a helicopter crash in Southern California with his 13-year-old daughter. How many non-basketball fans I spoke to that it had an impact on? You know, they might have never even watched Kobe Bryant play one game. But this common experience that we have as human beings, desires, connection, intimacy, understanding, there's something that bonds us, even something like this, that we wouldn't even think about yesterday. We want that shared experience. We want meaning beyond ourselves. And you see it all throughout history. You see it now, too. People want to be a part. They want to be connected. They want to be a part of a tribe. And you can learn about a lot about not the poverty of the world, but the God-given desires that we have by observing people. They want to belong. Many of them want to include others. Some of them are afraid including too many dilutes their cause. There's a sense of who they are. If they have a mission, if they have a purpose beyond being together, sometimes you even observe self-sacrifice to stay together. Letting go of something you cared about for the cause of the greater good. I think you see people acting this way a lot. People are even doing this on the internet too, right? I think people are finding community. And they're finding community in spiritual groups too. They long for something spiritual. They want meaning beyond themselves and they want hope beyond the material. And I, so I think they're primed for metaphysical depth too. I think they want more. They want to believe that the natural or the observable isn't that all that there is. That there is something more. Maybe they even feel like there's something more. And I appreciate that longing. I appreciate that desire. Even if sometimes it's poorly placed, like you believe in conspiracy theories or, or uh, potentially dangerous methods of healing. I think all that stuff is okay, though. It tills the soil of the faith. And it produces good things as well. It's not bad. Keep expanding your mind. Keep imagining, you know. Stimulate your mind. Think about things that are bigger than you are, right? That kind of a work, though, will sometimes center us on our own experiences, though. The main reason to join one of these communities is to feel better, to help yourself, especially in our own hardship, our accidental hardship, as you might say. I think people are looking for that sort of help, and I think it's good to offer it. And I want you to experience that here. That's why I start the meeting with the hope that you will experience a blessing, I, the, the hope that you will have and learn that the Spirit of God is within you. 
to bless you as well, that you don't need to keep looking outside of yourself for the blessing that it's within you. I really do want you to feel blessed and encouraged by being a part of our community. Some people might tell you that the blessing the church gives you will make you feel better than what the yoga studio does or what the rock climbing club will or what your intramural soccer team will. I guess you could compare people's experiences like that if you wanted to, but it seems to me a little fruitless to do the comparison. Like this is the, this is the best place to get your uh, most positive experience and all the other stuff isn't that good. You know, I don't, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't rock climb or play soccer or do yoga. So like it's, it's, I'm not speaking from my experience, but it seems like people kind of like that stuff and they're getting something out of it. And so I'm not interested in a one-to-one kind of a free market competition with the communities that make us feel better. That's not really how I'm thinking about being a church, but I think Christians can sometimes get caught up in that. And thus, we're threatened by other groups, or we try to offer a better experience or a better version of Christianity, and then all of a sudden you have churches splitting a million denominations, 30,000 denominations to be specific. And I think that's why Christians can be suspicious of things in the world, maybe more than they should be, suspicious of one another. And, and, and the cost of that is actually more isolation. So it's the reverse of where we're trying to go, right? For my part, I do think there is a personal benefit in, in, in Christianity and being a Christian and following Jesus. But if we reduce it to that, we just we uh, reduce it, we turn it into a mechanism for coping with the world. And that's not what the faith is. And you might know this, sometimes Christianity is derided as a coping mechanism for the world, like it is by a materialist philosophers like uh, Karl Marx, who you might know, said religion is uh, an opiate of the people. And if we reduce it to just something that makes us feel better, it's really no different than any other hobby or grouping. And so if that's what it is, so be it. It's one of many options. And if that's all it is, it wouldn't even go down as a terrible thing because it did help people. But I think there's a fatal flaw that Christians uh, um, deal with when it comes to this especially in recent centuries. One of the reasons that Christianity, at least a form of it, has thrived in the United States is because it's meshed up really nicely with the United States ethic. Now, I'm not talking about this, uh, this um, what I'll say is an idolatry that can sometimes form between uh, political parties and the church, mainly because most of us aren't into all that stuff. But we're still at risk because a significant part of the U.S. ethic is freedom of religion. And so part of being American is, is being freely religious or irreligious. And when we consider our faith only within that context, like it's one of many options where I can live in this political economy, we're actually submitting to another philosophy before Jesus. Something like Americanism, right? That's the idea because the state is the one who grants us this luxury of being religious as we want, expressing our faith as we want. And only a state that isn't threatened by the freedom of religion would allow that to happen. And so it limits the power of the faith itself because it has to fit nicely into the American political economy. You know, sometimes you hear, I've heard this a lot of times in my life for some reason, but someone's praying and they and they, they 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 thank god for the state allowing them to be free which like they changed their god in the first sentence so it's a little it's a little unusual for me that that's that's what would happen 
I long to bring the gospel to the present with great flexibility, like our proverb says. I want to resist when it's appropriate too, though. You know, I think our faith should be inclusive, welcoming, accommodating, if you will, adaptive when it needs to be. I think the New Testament is full of examples of this. But it can't exist within a political economy without also disrupting it. Our faith is not just a personal accessory. It's not just an augmentation of our life. It's transformative. It changes our lives. Not only that, it changes the world. Faith isn't an... an, an, an I hope I can use this analogy because it's, it's a little um, on the nose. Faith isn't an opiate that sedates us as we endure the trouble around us. It's an amphetamine that stimulates us for changing the world, right? That's, that's what I think the faith is. It, it excites you for change. It doesn't tamp you down so that you're not a squeaky wheel anymore, you know? It does the opposite. The difference then between commun- community and communion is that the result of becoming one with God like the Father and Son are one, is that the event itself has cosmic consequences. It's not just personal, though it is, it's bigger than that. It makes your whole, it makes your personal life better, or it makes you think about your personal life differently. You know, it might not make you healthier and wealthier and, and all your relationships working out. It might actually lead you to accept your circumstance in a way that is encouraging. But it also changes the world. Makes the world better. And that word better gets defined too. And I want to keep saying this, that we want to change the world, because I think people think of faith as strictly for personal care or wellness. Very easy to discard in that case. If our faith fits nicely into the political economy, maybe we're not doing it right. It should be disruptive, transformative. It should agitate us. It should change us. That little inconvenience that you feel That's okay, that's a normal feeling. It should be disruptive. But that's the problem we have. We want to join a community because it makes us feel better. I hope this one will. I think that's good. And and going back to where I started, I, I, I think that longing for community and relationship and intimacy and connection is an intrinsic part of us. It's not a it's not a depraved part of us, it's not a miserable part of us. So I don't think desiring community, even if it is just to feel good, is wrong. I think that's what God intended. But even our good intentions undergo hardships. And even the remnants of the facade of creation are are just remnants. And as such, they can be perverted as an accident of humankind. So it could be easy for us to reduce our desire for community to personal satisfaction. And then once the itch is gone, we just let it go. But the fullness of community found in communion with God is much more dramatic than that. It disturbs us in a unique way. And if your faith isn't disturbing your life, if it's just accommodating your way of life, well, let's think about it a little bit bigger than that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I think that's in some ways perfectly human, which is perfectly okay. I just think there's more out there. There's something bigger that God is doing beyond personal comfort. When the pastors, when I say the pastors, I mean the pastors of Circle of Hope, me, Julie, Rachel, Ben, were discussing this movement from communion to community. We were wondering what makes Christian community unique and not just an option among many. 
And though this isn't unique to Christianity, strictly speaking, a Christian community has a mission of cultural interrogation and inclusion. And for me, and my part, when we, can, when we confront people that we think are oppressing us, we want to convert them, we want to change them, but we also want to be changed too. Reconciliation is what we're working with, not conquest, not defeat. And, and the reason I say that is because when I talk about world redemption, changing the world, making it a better place, you might think, and this is easily mistaken for this, you might think it's political, that we're a political uh, grouping that's trying to uh, change the political apparatus. The church's transformation of the world, the revolution that comes from Jesus, the redemption that comes from Jesus, definitely has political ramifications. But it's not political um, in the same way we think of our political systems. One of the main reasons it's not is because it's nonviolent. Rather than oppressing our enemies, we seek to transform them. Rather than uh, um, forcing them to act one way or the other, we're actually reconciling with them. And we open ourselves up to realize what reconciliation we need to do. When we think of someone else as our enemy, we learn also we're someone else's enemy. And if you don't think you're someone else's enemy, you should get to know more people, right? Or take a walk in, in creation and see what, what, what an enemy we can be to creation, right? And then work on that reconciliation. Our communion with God and with one another isn't just an aid to make us feel better in our present circumstances. It is a fuel that we use to change our circumstances. The church needs to be a transforming agent, flipping the whole world upside down. And our little expression of it here is a part of that. Right? That's the little thing we're doing here is a part of that world redemption. It is a part of that cosmic consequence. And I think we're building it together. Let's keep going, shall we? Let's pray and then we'll do some talk back. Thank you, Lord, for being here, for being present and faithful. May we be encouraged by our connection with you and by our intimacy with you. May we also be disrupted and changed as we move toward world redemption, world salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.